1 Timothy 3, 8 through 10, as I drive the struggle bus for us this morning. 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Elias Santana was a young doctor who was born in the Dominican Republic. He came to Chicago to go to medical school and he was uh, offered any job, any practice that he wanted to go into. Elias was a Christian and he felt that his people would be best served at home with his medical skills. So what he would do is he would return home to the Dominican Republic and he would serve the people in the slums in the Dominican Republic. And to fund his own ministry, he would go and perform surgeries in Puerto Rico for those who could afford it. He would take the proceeds from that ministry and then he would go and serve in the slums in Santo Domingo. He would serve day and night giving medicine and performing routine medical procedures for those who had no insurance, those who could not pay. He would take care of children and he would love the people well. And then at the end of the day, after serving, as the sun was going down, he would stand on the top of his truck. He would open up one of the gospels. He would read a gospel story and then he would share the gospel and invite people to come to know the Lord. The interesting thing was, as he was caring for these people, there was a group from the university there uh, that was a Che Guevara Marxist leftist group that was seeking to convert poor people into Marxism. And so there was not really a struggle for Elias with this, but as he was standing and sharing the gospel message, one of the pastors that worked with him nudged the student leader of the Marxist movement and he said, Elias is bringing people to Jesus. He said, if he keeps loving them like this, you're not gonna have anybody to convert to Marxism. Kind of stepping back, you would expect a, a, a snarky rebuttal, but he didn't. Here's what the student leader of this Marxist movement said. He said, Elias has earned the right to be heard. Elias has earned the right to be heard. And so it is with the message of the gospel. How powerful is it to see the gospel spoken with words, to see Jesus glorified with our words from a church that loves Jesus, but also puts into practice what we say we love. We love and serve people with our words, but a church that can love well with our hands like Jesus, that sends a powerful, powerful message to the world. So last week we looked at how do we apply the gospel with words? We saw that through the role of the elders. This week we're gonna learn how we apply the gospel with actions as we examine the lives and qualifications of deacons. So how do you apply the gospel with words and action, with actions? How do you do that? Two things. First, you must see like Jesus. And then secondly, you must serve like Jesus. So you must see like Jesus and you must 
serve like Jesus. We find the deacons must see like Jesus in verse nine. Look with me there. He says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So for a deacon to see someone else's need, they must know who Jesus is as set forth by the apostles' teaching in the Bible. It's one thing to say you know Jesus. It's another thing to know the Jesus of the Bible. This is why in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul was so adamant that in the church's life, with all of the false teaching that surrounds Jesus, your leaders and your deacons here, they must know who Jesus is. Well, how in the world do you see like Jesus? How in the world do you do this well? How in the world do you find the way that Jesus loves other people? Well, first you have to ask, well, how in the world did Jesus see other people? Think back to John 13. It was prior to the Passover. Jesus was with uh, all of his apostles and people during that day and age, they traveled on foot everywhere. So they had Kmart feet. Kmart feet is a term that we use in the South for kids that go into like bootleg Walmart barefooted and they just got the dirtiest feet. I was a Kmart foot kid. Anyway, they had really dirty feet and Jesus knew their need before anyone asked. He didn't ask anybody else to to care for other people and he puts a towel over his waist, he fills a basin and he starts to wash his disciples' feet. They were, no, 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 Jesus, you can't do this. This is disgusting. This is the lowest work for the lowest of servants. Why in the world, Jesus, are you doing this for me? Jesus sums it up in verses 14 through 17. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, that's Jesus saying, you better listen up. I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Here's the kicker. If you know these things, so head knowledge, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Don't miss that connection between what you believe and what comes out of your hands and your heart. For deacons and for all of us to see like Jesus, we must intimately know the Lord that we serve. He came washing sinners' feet. And you're like, yeah, I agree with that. He washed Judas's feet. Think of that. He knew Judas was going to betray him. Judas would be the one who, who, who sold Jesus out just for some money. And he still washed Judas's feet. It's bananas to think that. He came laying down his life, unwilling to be served, but to serve other people. He lived in our place. He lived a perfect, righteous life and died in a sinner's place. This is the type of Jesus that we worship. And this is vital for everyone to understand, especially our deacons. Why? If you don't realize the work that you're doing, is following in the footsteps of Jesus and simultaneously bringing him glory, you're going to miss the beauty of the calling of what it means to be a deacon. You're going to miss the beauty of what it means to serve others as you serve Jesus. You must have this foundational biblical gospel truth and you've got to hold it with a clenched 
fist. Don't hold this truth loosely. Why? Being a deacon is hard. It is so hard. Serving other people is hard. Think about it. It's lonely, behind-the-scenes work. People don't thank you for what you do, but when things start to mess up, you will hear about it immediately. It's this kind of out of sight, out of mind, but if things break, they're the first one you're calling. Not only are deacons in charge of making sure we've got a place to worship, but they also hear the cries of God's people. They hear the needs of the church. They hear the the needs of people's brokenness and their need for counseling and home repairs and cars and struggle in life. They hear these things regularly. And if you don't know that these are the people that God shed his blood for in Jesus, you will then become cynical and angry. But praise God that our deacons are able to hear the cries because that's a glimpse of what Jesus hears. That's a glimpse of what our Savior hears, and thank God Jesus calls men into this role to steward us well. Not only are service opportunities brought to our deacons day and night, but they've got the, they need to have the eyes of Jesus who see a need without even being asked to take care of the need. That's a spiritual gift. Being able to see people who are hurting and to be outside of yourself and to love people well and to not have anyone ask for you to do things, but you just step up and do it faithfully, that's a spiritual gift. That is a good and beautiful calling. To do this well, our deacons need to be present. They need to be thoughtful, and they need to have hands like Jesus ready to serve and to do the lowliest things in the church. And remember, if you miss this, If you miss this good news about this calling, you'll be jaded and cynical and lazy. Another request. Am I just a giant babysitter? This thing's not working again. I've got to set this up. I'm already here at six. I'm back late. I'm serving, serving, serving. I'm so tired of this. I'm exhausted. Can people not just take care of themselves? Seeing like Jesus ensures that you are consuming Jesus uh, uh, at a, a ravenous pace, that you are swimming in the ocean of God's grace, and that the lens of which you view this church and the people in our city through is like Hebrews 12 too. The writer says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus with joy endured the cross despising the shame is and seated at the hand of the throne of God. Church, your deacons have accepted a very high calling. It's not the minor leagues to step stone up into elderhood. It's not janitorial service. It's not a babysitting service. Their calling is just as high as the elders. And I need to lead with what I say and do. And I need to thank our deacons. We love you guys. This church would be an absolute disaster without you. Forgive me for not thanking you enough. But on behalf of Keith and the, and the elders, we love you guys. Y'all are handsome, got good hair, most of you. We love you guys, really. We're, we're so incredibly thankful for you. 
Now, we ask, what does it look like to apply the gospel with actions? First, you must see like Jesus, and we saw that. Next, we need you to serve like Jesus. And here, like last week, we see another list of qualifications, of moral qualifications for your leaders to have. There's gonna be some overlap, and there's gonna be some unique ones. Uh, I've boiled these down to a simple acronym, HD, honesty and depravity. I mean, not depravity, dependability. What a day. What a day. Honesty and dependability. Goodness, y'all. Goodness. Can we edit that? Goodness. We find honesty wrapped up, summarized in verse eight. Look with me there. It says, dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine and not greedy for dishonest gain. Now, the reason why I lump all of these uh, moral qualifications into honesty is there's a word picture that's being built here. Think back to Luke chapter six. Jesus says this in verse 45. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And we see in this list internal character that moves from the heart to the mouth. And we see deacons must be dignified. This is just another word to add on to character, but specifically for the calling of deacons. Now, how does that specifically apply? Think about what our deacons do on a regular basis. One of the, the many things that they do is they care for the tithe and offering that we collect in offering plates. Not only that, but they meet with people who are oftentimes in places of need, who are oftentimes hurting, who need assistance. Some people need money for bills, doctor's appointments, whatever the case may be. But you want your deacons to be honest because they don't need to look at the offering plate and start salivating as a way to make their pockets fatter. They don't need to skim some off the top, right? We have multiple people that do the offering, but you get a couple of guys that are corrupt, they can start embezzling money from the church. This stuff happens. Not only that, but you want your deacons to be honest because as they're dealing with hurting people, if they are deceptive and not honest, they will see hurting people as those to manipulate for their own good. You can get hurting and scared people to do a myriad of things with fear and manipulation. You do not want your deacons who are not honest. A dignified deacon means that they're going to steward money and people well. This makes sense why Paul adds some qualifiers there. He says, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy. Greedy people can never have enough. Too much is never enough. And think about those who struggle with addictions. I've seen it in my personal life. Not just addictions to wine, but uh, to gambling. I've seen all these things. What do addictions take? Money. Imagine if somebody is addicted to gambling, they see the offering there and be like, you know what? I bet you I can take 20% of this, put it on the Jaguars to lose every single game this season, and I could triple this offering for the church. Boom, stewardship, let's go. And then they go and lose and we're out of money. You don't want uh, folks addicted to things and substances and lifestyles handling our money and handling our people. 
You want your deacons to be honest internally, but also you want them honest externally with their speech. We talked about this a little bit with our vows. Paul adds this really interesting word, double-tongued. In the Greek, it means a person speaking out of both sides of their mouth. They're telling this person what they wanna hear. They're telling this person what they wanna hear. Uh, They're duplicitous. Not only do they, uh, they're not honest with their speech, but this word includes not able to keep their mouths closed when they hear about sensitive information. Your deacons will largely hear, if you need help, tell me what's going on at home. Let's look at your budget. Let's try to help you. There's a process and forms that are filled out for people that need help, and we're willing to help. But when you get inside of people's business like this, the good, the bad, and the ugly, if your deacons don't have the ability to keep their mouths closed, they can cause tremendous damage and even destroy a church. So you want your deacons to be able to Uh, uh, be honest in their speech. John Locke said about thoughts and actions, he says, I've always thought that the actions of men are the best interpreters of their thoughts. And this is precisely the case that uh, relates to deacons who serve. You want them to be honest. You want them to be full of integrity. But the million dollar question is, well, how in the world do you verify honesty? I'm sure y'all have met plenty of people who said they were stand-up, honest people and found out that they were scoundrels, right? Am I the only one? I'm sure we've all been there, right? How do you verify honesty? Deacons must prove it by being dependable. Dependable, and that's our final category. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, and let them be also tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. You see, it's one thing to say that you're honest and dependable. It's another thing for people to verify that about you. This is why Paul adds that they must be tested before serving in this role. Your leaders at Christ Church East, they go through a very, very serious testing phase. Keith and I, what happens is y'all will nominate elders and deacons, and for nine months, we read books, and we meet once a week. We go through various books. There's homework then there is a written exam, giving your testimony. You are living in close fellowship with our current elders and pastors for nine entire months. You have a very difficult exam, and even if you pass the exam, it doesn't even necessitate that you're going to be passed into uh, leadership at this church. It even weeds out people along the way, not in a shameful way, but it just, do you really want it? Are you really willing to go through all of this to then just go and serve, to then just go and love people and to be selfless. It's good that this process weeds people out because you want quality over quantity. You can't rush people into leadership. If you rush people into leadership and their words and their actions don't match, you're going to have a mess. A guy named Clark Cothin tells a story how he and his friends, while they were in college, were traveling through Europe, and they would find various host homes to stay along the way. Well, Clark traveled with some of his buddies, and they found this host home in Sweden. I've never been to Sweden, but I've seen enough cooking shows where they deal regularly with smelly items. Their food just kind of smells. If you've been there, you can, you can fact check me on that. Anyway, they get on the train, and they meet their, their host family that they're staying with, and they notice that this couple, this elderly couple, they don't speak a lick of English. I mean, not a lick. 
And as any normal college-age male would when he's with his friends, he would try to make fun of the event. So they're sitting on the train, and he looks over at his buddy, and he's like, these people could be serial killers, nodding at the old man and woman. And she just nods and smiles back. She has no clue what's saying. Should we be terrified for our lives? Yeah. And so she's just nodding and there's this communication happening that doesn't make any sense. So they get home, they put their bags up and like any good host, they bring out uh, tea and crackers. And then there was this horrible smelling cheese And she cuts a chunk and she lays it before the guys and his buddy, who's the prankster, starts eating it and smiling and patting his stomach, giving a thumbs up. And he looks at Clark and says, I'm going to throw up if I keep eating. This is so foul. This is bad. And giving her a thumbs up, the old lady looks at him. She gets the assignment. She knows what he needs. He needs a larger piece of this giant, sticky cheese. He finishes the first one while retching, and then he starts to work on the second large piece while nodding and smiling in approval. And she's pumped he's eating that stinky cheese. And Clark says his friend's face starts to turn green. He's fighting back, projectile vomiting this cheese all over this floor. What's funny about this is this a reminder that our words and our actions need to match. If our words and actions do not match from our leadership, from our elders, from our deacons, down to all of us in here that are members of Christ Church East, um, we can make a hot mess of things. We can make a hot mess of things. It's such a reminder that our words and our actions, they should tell the same story. This means our deacons, if they're dependable, this means that you can expect them to be here, that their love is the church, Uh, There is a massive um, problem, uh, social uh, thing that's going on in our culture with fear of missing out. If you have guys who would rather be everywhere else but the church, that's okay, but just don't put them into leadership positions. It's not that they can't have a social life, but you want them to be constrained by their love and desire to serve the church. There just has to be a different heart motivation there. You want them to be reliable. You want them to say, if I say I'm gonna do it, I'm going to do it. We need dependable leaders. We need dependable men, not only in the church, but can depend on them in their homes. We see uh, this same encouragement that our deacons should care for their families well if they are married. Now, here's uh, verse 11. You might notice that in your Bibles, Verse 11 can be translated as wives of deacons or women. Either way is a fine translation. Paul is saying that the deacons and elders are accompanied by their wives in loving people well. The the history of the church in Acts, in in the Bible, is full of women caring for the church well, and this church would be a hot mess if we didn't have women serving and caring for other women in this church, because there's women's stuff that y'all don't want to bring to me. I don't get women. I've been married this year 10 years. I'm still learning and getting to know my wife, and I love her to death, but I'm sure most men can say that. We're kind of simple, right? We need godly women joining the work of men in leadership to care for other women and the church this is why we see uh, later in the book of Titus instructions for women. And we look back at Acts and how the women help with 
the church plants. Paul's just highlighting how important it is that we all are working together as a team and that we're all following Jesus because he doesn't call any of us to do anything that hasn't already passed through nail-pierced hands. This brings us to the final question. Why? Why in the world would anyone want this calling? I asked that last week for elders. I'll ask it again for deacons this week. Why in the world would somebody want to meet weekly for nine months to go through theology and leadership and church uh, theology books to get examined and have their lives vetted and, and to ask hard questions? Why in the world would anybody want to do that to then just go and serve behind the scenes, not asking for any thanks whatsoever? Why in the world would anybody do this? Look at verse 13. It says, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. See, here's a really counterintuitive thing that happens when you pour yourself out for other people. God, by his spirit, builds you up in confidence. It's often said it's better to give than to receive. And, and Paul is confirming this here. It's so strange to think that when we are tired and we're selflessly living and thinking for other people, when we already do this at home and at work and on our teams, that we come to church and we do this day in and day out. It's so wild to think that in doing that, we get a greater sense of fulfillment from Jesus. It's pretty incredible. Dave Simmons is a pastor and he tells a story about how uh, this was back in the 80s. He took his children. He had a boy and a girl and took them to the mall. And you'll notice the story is back in the 80s because there was a petting zoo in front of the mall. And then you can just trust to leave your kids at this petting zoo with petting zoo people and go inside and shop and trust that your kids are going to be okay with the goats and the animals. And they're not going, kids just are brutal on animals, right? So Dad drops the kids off. The cost was 50 cents per person to get into this petting zoo. His dad flips both of his kids a quarter because he misunderstood the cost. So he gives them the quarter. He walks into the store. He's in the tool aisle. He's in Sears. And then a few minutes later, he feels a tug on his shirt and he looks down and it's his older daughter. He says, what in the world are you doing in here? I thought you wanted to be with animals. You're the biggest animal lover I've ever known. And she said, well, dad, it costs 50 cents to get in. And she was like, I gave my quarter to my brother because I wanted him to experience this. And when your kids do this, you're like, man, where did they get this? And he's just, he asked, he's like, babe, what, why are you thinking like this? This is encouraging. She said, well, dad, you and mom always say love is sacrificial action. And what happened is as she was being raised, uh, her mom and dad would regularly, you know, steal dessert, last bite of food, the last sip of the milkshake, and then smile and say, love is sacrificial action. This had become a part of who she was. This had become a part of her worldview that she lived out daily. And she finally had the chance to do this with her brother. So dad, just very encouraged, was just super happy for this. They walk outside and she goes and rests her hands on the gate and puts her head on her hands. And she's got a smile from ear to absolute ear. She didn't ask for another quarter and the dad didn't even offer her a quarter. They just sat there and enjoyed watching her selfless love lived out for her brother. 
Now, this family motto highlights something very important. Love pays a price. Love is costly. When we love other people, it benefits them. Love gives and doesn't grab. Love is for other people's benefit. And this highlights the work of Jesus, who from birth to death lived his life giving and pouring out and mercilessly loving us, sinners, enemies. And this wasn't cheap grace. It's free to us, but it's not cheap. He sweat drops of blood. He was left alone and abandoned. His closest friends were nowhere to be found when he was hanging in between two criminals. And Hebrews tells us this was his joy to do this. Church, we love and serve because we've got a risen king, Jesus Christ, who loved us that much and calls us to live out of that love for the good of other people. We don't do it for our glory. We do it for his, his fame and the good of others around us. Let's pray. Jesus, the gospel is mind-blowing. The, the thought that you would willingly live and die and rise again for sinners like us who are fickle at best with our love for you. We are hot and cold. We are cynical and jaded and frustrated and easily thrown into a tizzy. But Jesus, you are that calm, consistent ruler who's not shocked by anything. There is no plan B with you. You are sovereign and king over everything. And you call us to bring our requests to you. And they are met in you, Jesus. Would you help us to love you more? Would you help us to have eyes to see others around us, uh, to serve them and love them well? And will we do it not to inflate our own egos, but to uh, deflate and point to you, Jesus. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.